Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, on iTunes and via the web. I'm Nick Cheeseman, a research fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. Think of student activism in Asia and what comes to mind. The democracy movement in China during 89, or Burma the year before, the tumultuous student politics of Thailand in the mid-70s, perhaps the 2014 protests in Hong Kong. For most of us, student politics in Malaysia probably isn't the first thing we'd think of. But not Meredith Wise, an associate professor at the University at Albany, author of Student Activism in Malaysia, Crucible, Mirror, Sideshow, published jointly by NUS Press and the Cornell Southeast Asia Programme in 2011. Student activism in Malaysia offers a definitive account of student politics and university life in this Southeast Asian country from the colonial period to the present. The number of scholarly monographs on Malaysia is small and fewer as meticulously researched and referenced as this book. For these reasons alone, it deserves close attention. Wise writes to recover lost history, and she does so with keen insight and nuance. At the same time, she pushes the reader to rethink what the categories of student and activist mean, not only in Malaysia or Southeast Asia, but also as identity and descriptive categories in the modern world. Let's listen to Meredith Wise talk about student activism in Malaysia. Today on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, we're talking with Meredith Wise about her book, Student Activism in Malaysia, Crucible, Mirror, Sideshow. Meredith, welcome to the show. Thanks. Can you fill us in on the background of the book? What got you into writing about Malaysia and student activism? Not necessarily in that order. Sure. I've been writing on Malaysia for a number of years now, and this book followed on earlier projects that had to do more with civil society broadly in Malaysia. For this book specifically, the origin was a pair of conferences on civil society in Asia, in which I participated a couple years before I started the research for the book, along with Ed Aspinall, Jian Hang, Susanna Kadir, and various other people. Uh, this was for a project Mutaya Alagapa from the East-West Center organized on civil society in Asia. One of the themes that came up across all our chapters and across discussions on the different countries of the region was the specific ubiquitousness of or ubiquity of students as actors within civil societies across the region, but the lack of sustained specific attention to students as, as a type of actor. Out of that workshop, a few of us decided that we would plan for a follow-up volume of our own on student activism across the region. That took much longer than any of us ever imagined. We had some shifting personnel and so forth, but eventually Ed and I did publish that as the cleverly titled Student Activism in Asia, with a subtitle, of course. Um, However, in starting my research for the Malaysia chapter of that book, I was startled to realize just how little research was out there specifically on students. I was familiar with a couple of works, which... Anyone who researches these things in Malaysia are familiar with. And I think because of that, I assumed that there would be more out there. And there was almost none. And so what had begun for me as a chapter ended up quite quickly developing into a much larger project. And that was the genesis of this specific book. So that's the my side of it, how I ended up working on these issues, more largely, I suppose, is the broader context, which is to say that part of what sparked our initial idea for that comparative volume was that Malaysian students seem incredibly meek and apathetic in contrast to students from elsewhere in the region. The penalties for engagement are much lower in Malaysia, even if 
most engagement is still forbidden. Um, the general climate politically has been less authoritarian and less coercive in Malaysia than elsewhere in the region. And so it doesn't really make sense on face why Malaysians would be, broadly speaking, the cowards of the region in terms of student activism. And yet that seemed to be what we saw. And so that threw up something of a guiding puzzle for me of why is it that Malaysians are so less engaged, not just as students, but also more broadly in civil society than their counterparts regionally, and or is that meekness actually the case? Is the myth of tira apathy, of not caring, a myth, or is that reality in the Malaysian context? And do the answers to some of these questions lie in the subtitle to the book? You refer to a crucible, a mirror, and a sideshow, and I'm really itching to know something more <laughs> about you know, why that subtitle is there and how it relates to that problem that you've just described. Sure, that, that would be title number, I don't know, 87 among the different ones that I considered. But yes, um, that paradox is what gave rise to the subtitle. So in the early years of student activism in Malaysia, which would be also when Malaysia and Singapore were united either as parts of a colony or very briefly in a federation, the campuses really did serve as crucibles of larger political activism. Uh, so all political leaders would speak on campus. Political leaders were assumed to come from amongst recent graduates, uh, since any graduates were by definition recent at that point, and so forth. And so we saw the university and students as serving a function of generating issues, generating debate, generating discourse, and rallying mobilization, serving as a crucible for larger politics in much the same way that they do elsewhere. Over time in Malaysia, there was a shift in which what students did came increasingly to mirror what was done in the larger society. So students in Malaysia, unlike in a place like Indonesia, for instance, or China for that matter, have rarely seen themselves, especially since around the early 1970s, as being distinctive, as mobilizing as students, as opposed to mobilizing as concerned activists for human rights or for Islam or whatever the issue might be when they do engage. In Indonesia, for instance, we have this discourse of moral purity that sets students apart as a distinctive category, often reluctant to work with other students or other or with other categories of activists. In China as well, it's there's in part this idea uh, dating back to 1919, uh, 1904 before that, of students as a distinctive category and specifically moral. But there's also an, an ingrained suspicion of those who are less known because of the fear of regime infiltration of activist efforts. So in Malaysia, instead, we have students that set themselves up as basically a mirror of the outside world. So student elections, particularly since around the 1980s, have been conducted among blocks of campus, uh, uh, blocks of students who organize themselves in ways parallel to outside political parties. So you'll find activists on campus, or at least students who engage in student politics, who represent the ruling Barisan National Coalition, who organize themselves in that way, who talk about having um, an aspiration toward that, the term aspirasi is used. Um, and then you'll have counterpart activists who really organize themselves like the opposition coalition in recent years, or in connection with, however loosely, different opposition parties. So there is that mirroring function. At the same time, students became less significant to the broader polity over time in Malaysia. And so that's where we get the dimension of the sideshow. That whereas the, the authorities in the larger government, as well as, of course, on campus, may highlight instances of student unrest or of the bad apples that might spoil the bunch, as Mahathir would explain, the former prime minister. Indeed, there really wasn't a lot going on on the campuses through the 1980s into the 1990s that was of real interest or real impact for the broader polity. So I do trace out the ways in which students were involved, especially in Islamist and Catholic activism in that period. But what was 
being debated on campus had far more to do with minute issues of campus politics, of student loans, and so forth, than with the grand issues of development, of poverty, of foreign policy, and so forth, that used to engage the campus in an earlier period. You've given us a really good snapshot, or rather an, an overview of the contents of the book, and especially some of the chapters that we're going to delve into more deeply momentarily. But before we do that, um, you, you did mention this idea of the student as a, as a descriptive term, as a category. And I felt like in the book there's um, the, the notion of the student as a category is moving in two or three different directions. On the one hand, there's the collective identity associated with being a student or part of a student body. Um, on the other hand, you also talk about it as a functional identity for bureaucrats and, and government officials. So um, why is this way or why are the multiple ways of thinking about the category of student important for you as a researcher? And then and going back to this point about um, Malaysian students as apparently meek and apathetic, what are the implications for your research project? Well, the issue of the definition of student as a category is a tricky one, and I think that's what lies really at the crux of why students merit specific attention as a category of activists. So when we talk about identities, we can have, of course, individual or collective identities, and those identities may or may not be politically relevant or salient as part of someone's political identification broadly. Student is a tricky category. Because for bureaucratic purposes, as you note, or even for purposes of a given student's own sense of self, student may mean something purely functional. It may serve as a role identity. One as a student is what if one matriculates in an institution of learning, ideally studies while there, and presumably graduates from that institution over time. That is one definition of student. And that is, I argue in the book, the definition that students in Malaysia and Singapore have been pressed to prioritize over the years, particularly since the early 1970s, late 1960s. However, at the same time, we have globally a sense of student as a collective identity with a specific political meaning, that students are supposed to be idealistic, engaged, to comment upon broader societal issues, to train themselves to be as a block, future leaders, to be preparing themselves for roles in society later as elites to a greater or lesser extent by engaging in political commentary and activism while enrolled in those institutions of learning. That identification of student as a collective identity has a very different set of implications than the notion of student as a role or functional identity in that it would perhaps draw students away from studying, from doing the core things that one associates with student as a role identity. And yet in the broader society, we do tend to have a sense of what student means as a category, why we talk about students taking to the streets most recently over issues like Occupy globally, or the Sunflower and Umbrella revolutions that we saw uh, quite recently in Hong Kong and Taiwan, or whatever the specific activity might be. By the same token, when we have, for instance, these very recent, horribly tragic murders of students, of university students in Kenya, we recognize a special import that these are not just 150-odd deaths, however horrible that in itself would be, but also of university students who are seen as carrying a specific value to society as being worth a certain investment. In that way, when we have students stripped of that collective identity, as I argue did systematically happen in Malaysia over time, one part of civil society is shaved away on the one hand, but also students themselves acquire a fundamentally attenuated sense of their capacity or their potential when occupying that, that status. In addition, part of what makes students as a part of civil society difficult to study, but um, an important target, has to do with the, the inherent 
ephemeral quality of that identity that one is ideally not a student for life, that we, we may talk about being lifelong learners, for instance. One doesn't occupy that institutional niche for more than a fairly fixed period of time. And so we have a constant process of renewal of students entering and leaving that identity category and so forth that makes it possible to de-link one portion of the historical narrative or the essential understanding of what it means to be a student if, as I argue in the book, we take away the retelling or the learning of that past legacy. And so in that sense, students can be, over time, socialized really to understand the role of students as something functional and not to be aware of and thus to feel party to a collective role also as members of a student body. Is this an ephemeral quality what distinguishes student movements from wider social movements? And are there other characteristics or properties of student movements that you would use to, to differentiate them from social movements and indeed your own research from a social movement literature more generally? Right. It's a good question. The ephemeral quality is one aspect, but the other is that students are one of several sets of what Pinner has called marginal elites. These are categories of actors, not necessarily activists, but actors who have a particular isolated, bounded quality, but also an at least somewhat vaunted role within society. So Pinner includes, for instance, the clergy or the police as similarly situated marginal elites. Students, especially in the early years in a post-colonial context, when there are few universities, tend to live on or near that university campus, generally among other students. Not all. You'll always have some number of commuter students, for instance. And it's notable that, for instance, in Malaysia, early debates and early discussions of students' role highlighted the fact that those students who were commuters, who had a non-resident hostel, for instance, to which they could drop in, tended to be less involved or harder to get engaged with certain activities on campus. That's, that's not surprising. When students live together, like police or like clergy, in specific housing, when they eat their meals together, when they have classes together, when they learn things together, learn challenging new ideas together, when they walk certain pathways to get from point A to point B during the course of the day, which allows for nodal points for gathering spots, for seeing posters that are put up about XYZ, that changes the nature of students vis-a-vis other categories of actor. It might be that in some ways we can see trade union activists as functioning in a similarly concentrated and isolated way. But even then, there's a less immersive factor and, again, a less transient factor. This notion that students are in a liminal state between childhood and adulthood, often living away from home or out of their parents' continual grasp for the first time, generally at a fairly young, technically more reckless, according to neurobiology age, and having a sense of themselves as future elites. In fact, that used to be drummed into them in Malaysia by these visits from different politicians and so forth, that you are the future elites, you need to be thinking about what's important for the country, need to be engaged. Students would organize study tours out to the poor countryside to volunteer their services in Malay kampongs, villages, and so forth. Despite the fact that many of these students, especially at that time, were from at least partially English-speaking, generally more urban, more well-off backgrounds, and not from those rural Malay-speaking villages, um, and thus might not have had all that many relevant skills. The idea was that they were to be future elites, that they needed to get to know the people, and they needed to serve those people. Not unlike, for instance, notions of a Peace Corps or of various service learning activities that were then coming into vogue in around the 1950s and 60s, globally for much the same reasons. So in that sense, students really do have a number of distinct categories as a group. It's different to look at a student organization than to look at, for instance, a semi-permanent or permanent human rights organization that draws on members of the public who may be members 
for the rest of their life in this or that organization um, and who don't see each other outside the organization's purview and who have many other identities that would help to shape the activism in which they get engaged. So in other words, if one is a worker who works in a factory for a living, one might be more likely to engage in labor struggles after graduating from whatever educational experiences. Students are given a certain amount of latitude to insert themselves in debates and in struggles around issues in which they have no specific interest. And it's indeed that lack of specific self-interest that's seen generally to give students a certain voice and a certain moral authority in speaking out on issues of the poor or on issues of social justice or on issues of foreign policy or whatever the issue range might be. In terms of the conditions in Malaysia specifically, you identify three factors that you you consider to be distinctive. Um, One is a shift from the elite to non-elite character of uh, the student body and university education, and perhaps we'll touch on that momentarily. Another is relatively high opportunities for students to engage politically despite political repression. And again, you've touched on that briefly, but we can come back to it shortly. The one I would like to mention before we go into the contents of the chapters is your reference to the campus as a distinctive node in the polity and a site for demographic transformation. What what do you mean by that? And why is it important to the story of student activism in Malaysia? Right. That third point in some ways relates to the first about the shift in the relative elite status of the campus. But university campuses, I argue, serve more than a functional purpose. So just as students themselves have this bifurcated identity, so does the university campus, especially in the early years when there are very few universities, um, no more than a handful in most early post-colonial states, sometimes just one. And that university is seen as both critical to a developmental agenda and as a sign of status for the country and its inhabitants. That's part of why we still see so much um, of a challenge among universities to be on these different rankings, the Times Higher Education Supplement and so forth. Why in Malaysia, for instance, this is seen as a national crisis rather than a crisis relevant only to a specific university when no Malaysian universities are ranked. So in other words, universities serve a prestige function for the country as a whole, which few other institutions could do. At the same time, they are a site for specific forms of transformation. So if a regime has developmentalist ambitions, for instance, it might and generally does stress certain types of education on campus to prepare the next generation of technocratic elites to help to spearhead that transformation. At the same time, in a much more um, integral way, universities can help to transform society or serve to transform society by dint of who they admit. So like the military in many places, the universities are able to accept students from across class categories, from across across ethnic and religious categories, from across regional categories within the country, and bring all these polyglot individuals together into one institution. That mixing may offer a certain leveling function, so long as there's sufficient investment, for instance, in the campus, that students are not held back from joining the campus for lack of funds. So in other words, there can be some uh, economic mixing across students. But it also means that it's on campus that one is more likely to encounter people different from those with whom one grew up, especially if this is a student who did not attend one of the fairly few elite residential primary or secondary schools in Malaysia who attended a standard localized primary secondary school, who in other words grew up in an environment knowing people largely like themselves, especially in the rural areas that dominated Malaysia up until fairly recently. So in that sense, universities allow for a mixing across groups as well as uh, 
a certain directed progress toward agendas for development or agendas for where the regime would like the polity to end up over time. And this uh, mixing among groups and developmental agendas are, are key themes which emerge um, across all of the chapters of the book in, in one way or another. So why don't we get into them and talk in, in a little bit more detail about some of the points that you've covered very well at, at a general level. The, the chapters are organised in, in the pre-independence period and then from 1957 to 66, a, a period of, um, of, of, of nascent and, and cautious post-colonialism and internationalism. And then from 1967 to 1974, you describe uh, the, the protest heydays, uh, the period of high activism in the Malaysian student movement. And then subsequently, um, 1975 to 98, a period of, of repression, of curbing, of, of activism, and from 98 to 2010, um, the re-emergence of um, certain amounts of activism, but a different in, in type from what occurred in the earlier period. So perhaps we can begin at the beginning, as it were, and in the pre-independence period, if you can just set the scene a little bit, what what was Malaysia or before it Malaya and how did the universities come to occupy a place in that polity and how did the students come to occupy a place through the universities in the anti-colonial movement? In the early days with which the book starts, Malaya was a loose category um, combined of the federated and unfederated Malay states on the peninsula of what is now Malaysia, as well as the Strait Settlements, which were basically the urban island areas. And the Strait Settlements were generally more prosperous. This was Penang, Malacca, and Singapore. Um, But the entirety of this area was governed as a fairly densely interconnected British colonial holding. So, The university, when it was established, replaced a liberal arts college, Raffles College, as well as the King Edward VII Medical College, which had both been established earlier in the 20th century in Singapore as facilities to train elites, again, um, in a local context, instead of, for instance, sending all students to India, as had happened previously, to study medicine. Now they could study medicine at K7. this, uh, King Edward VII Medical College right in Singapore. Some education still tended to happen in England or elsewhere. So, for instance, there were continually a fairly high number of students who would travel to places like Egypt for a more religiously inflected higher education, to England to study to be teachers or otherwise. The best and the brightest would have Queen scholarships to study law or other topics also in the UK. And so this was not an isolated system. It was a local portion of a fairly internationalized set of higher education options, but options that were still available to a tiny proportion of the population, partly because of language. Very few were fluent in English, and that was the language of higher education, whether it be in Malaya or in the UK, of course. But also because of the general economic and educational status of the general population. So in these early days, there was from a fairly, from around the time that Raffles College was was established, there was already discussion of moving toward a university, of not just having a a college level, but a full-on university locally. Those plans were put on hold by World War II and the Japanese occupation, although in a strange episode that I talk about a bit in the book, the first university, technically at least by name, was set up during the occupation at the Changi prison camp, uh, to which a number of the teaching staff as well as the administrative staff from the medical college and Raffles College had been consigned. They negotiated with their Japanese guards to be able to acquire a a trolley full of books from the library at Raffles, brought that to the Changi prison camp and organized Changi University, which actually did secure 
uh, academic credit for those who participated in their courses after the war. But they organized, they had a registrar and a whole set of classes in which their fellow POWs could participate with minimal supplies, of course, holding these things under a tree and speaking just from memory and so forth. But it was still an interesting initiative. But after the war, finally, plans were set in motion to establish the University of Malaya, which was located then in Singapore. The goal of the university was to train Malayans to be able to play more active roles in the local economy, um, as well as in government. Most women were trained to be teachers at that time. There were very few who were allowed um, into the civil service, otherwise until somewhat later. Um, more of the male students were being trained for professions like medicine, as well as for civil service positions of various forms. The best and the brightest still tended to study overseas rather than locally. And indeed, initially, it was less expensive to educate someone locally than overseas. At the time, though, Malaya was going through much larger debates and transitions, of course, with the post-colonial shift toward pressing more aggressively for independence. There had not been an especially active independence or nationalist movement in Malaya pre-war. There was some, of course, um, and the most obvious portion of this was communist agitation under the Malayan Communist Party, which acquired a far more indigenized identity after, during and after the war than it had previously when it was more closely allied with the CCP rather than having a very specifically Malayan identity. But despite some early communist as well as Malay nationalist and other efforts to talk about independence, to talk about the shape of what should be Malaya, should Malaya ally with Indonesia, should it be part of a, a Malayuraya, a greater Malaya that would include all people of Malay ethnicity in the Philippines, in, in what's now the Philippines, Indonesia, and Malaysia, as well as Brunei, uh, should it just be the peninsula, what should constitute Malaya? There were some of those debates, but they were not so violent or so heated as in some other parts of Southeast Asia. After the war, the British as well started to discuss a transition to independence, this idea of tutelage under colonial rule to ensure that Malayans were prepared to govern themselves. And of course, the university was a big part of that, of preparing elites who could govern themselves after the British departure. So as these debates over a Malayan identity, about a Malayan character, about the boundaries of the country, about whether Singapore and Malaya should be one country, as those were happening, those debates occurred on campus as well. So in this period, even though students were sometimes more concerned, at least according to their publications, with really provincial issues like the prevalence of ragging of hazing students than with these very heated debates over Malayan unity and identity and independence, there still was a translation of the larger debates in society onto the campus. The formation of political clubs, the holding of economic as well as political debates, um, a literary movement on campus that developed from around the 40s and 50s in this period of discussion over identity that aimed both to bring students in touch with the issues of the larger public. So, um, poems about poverty, about hardship, and so forth, but also even a movement to try to launch um, Ingmalchen, um, a language that would not be English, but that would reflect the languages of Malaysia, of Malay and Singapore, and, and, and Malay and Chinese, mixed with English in a local patois or a local language. It never really took off, but there was what was called the university verse or university poetry movement that really tried to give some leverage to those who wanted to push for a distinctly Malayan identity in the face of a still very much British university enterprise. You talk about an, how in the waning days of colonialism, their students had, in certain respects, a greater freedom intellectually and greater opportunities to, to act than what came later. And yet, at the same time, we, we find this persistent paradox that the number of activist students remain in the minority um, and that 
type of radical politics that we see developing in other Southeast Asian colonies um, and then into the post-colonies in that period doesn't emerge or doesn't emerge strongly in Malaysia. So uh, can you say a little bit more about why that's the case? And I guess this juxtaposition of the repression that was to come later under uh, an independent government as against that under the colonial regime is something which is also striking in the story that you're telling. There are any number of reasons why these strands came together, why university students were not hugely inclined to use latitude that they had, for instance, why repression was relatively slim and so forth. But I'll just highlight a few key aspects. On the one hand, in these very British universities, or at the time just one university, the British did, I think to their credit, uphold the same sort of norm of autonomy and academic freedom that they held, at least on face, in the UK. So this assumption that universities should be sites of critical discourse among fairly privileged intellectuals. That premise came through most clearly in uh, two trials, one in 1951, one in 1954, both over broadly uh, student critiques of colonial policy. Um, and in, in light of one of these trials in particular, the judge argued, and I'll paraphrase, I can't remember the exact wording, that these are the sorts of discussions, critiques that we should expect of university students, that these are intellectuals who can speak for themselves. So on the one hand, we had this premise of university autonomy, of academic freedom, of students as intellectuals, as future leaders who needed to be exposed. So even when a set of students, for instance, were detained on St. John's Island in Singapore in the early 1950s for um, having set up what was seen as a potential or quasi-communist cell on campus, they were still able to access Marxist and other literature and to debate that literature, even though the general public had no access to those sources. So actual texts that were banned for the general public could be accessed in the university. Uh, it's worth noting that there's still a set of restricted access materials at the National University of Singapore Library that are easier to access, I imagine, than they used to be, but that um, are still not put on the shelves for general access. You have to request them. But so on the one hand, we did have a sense that, yes, the authorities would prosecute if students went too far, and especially if they showed any potentially seditious or communistic tendencies, but at the same time that they could be expected to have a degree of latitude, even if they were detained. And that stood in direct contrast to, for instance, Chinese secondary school students who also organized, who also engaged Lee Kuan Yew's services as, as an attorney in the early 1950s, in their case, to protest, among other things, a new national service enactment that would require them to serve that colonial state they so disliked and in which they felt second class, that they had second class status those students were not given the same latitude. The repression on Chinese secondary school students who are presumed more closely linked to the communists, who are seen as less mature, who were less like the British elites themselves, that was much more harsh. So that brings me to what I see as really a key reason for why, why universities were seen as more privileged and safe in those early years than later. And I think that has to do with the fact that these were future elites being groomed in the image of the British themselves in order to take over a former colony, a state, as it emerged in a way that would not be antithetical to British interests. The universities were English language zones in a largely non-Anglophone polity. As after 1967, the universities transitioned quite rapidly and rather disruptively to Malay as a nationalist policy. And at that point, what the students said, what the students wrote, uh, and what the students read was likely to be just as accessible to the general public as to students themselves. If students were writing even somewhat subversive material in Fajar, for instance, the magazine of the University Socialist Club, in 1954, critiques of the Vietnam War, of colonial or neo-colonial policies therein, 
that publication was in English. And so even if it were challenging to colonial rule, it could only be read by the British in Singapore, by other Europeans in Singapore, and by the educated elite in Singapore or Malaya, not by the general public. And so it was likely to have a far less disruptive or incendiary impact. So in that sense, I think language had a large part of, or a lot to do with why the universities were fairly privileged. But then part of it also was this idea, again, stated explicitly in this 1954 court judgment, that when the colonial authorities set up universities in their colonies, this is the sort of thing that they should expect, that this is part of what students are supposed to do. At the same time, we, we still have that paradox that most students did not engage politically. That would be a paradox were it not the case that students never have overwhelmingly engaged politically in any context, except perhaps for one brief moment when you'll find some mass protest that really serves to rally the vast majority of students. But that's tremendously rare if we look across history. It's usually a small subset. And that paradox really relates to that, again, bifurcated identity among students, that on the one hand, they're there to study. They are not there, first and foremost, to be political activists, just as it may seem somewhat paradoxical that students engage on issues in which they have no specific expertise. That's one of the challenges that's put against students' involvement on issues of, for instance, labor rights or the rights of the poor or whatever else um, in Malaysia in recent years. But who are they to speak? They know nothing of these issues. Students themselves, they feel that same dilemma that why should they be speaking out or what authority do they have to speak out on these issues that are so far removed from their own experience. But more to the point, students may be pressed by simple academic pressures, by the fun they have on campus. So sports teams, for instance, loom large among campus activities, much larger than more politically engaged groups at any given point in time in Malaya or most other places in the world. And so it's it shouldn't surprise us that most students are not first and foremost political activists while being students, that most really do privilege studying their role as students and or the other social events for which the campus is also known above or at least before they privilege uh, different types of political engagement. Right. So that being the case, I'm going to push ahead cognizant of our time and ask you then, what happened in the late 60s and early 70s to cause, uh, uh, relatively speaking, an upsurge in protest, uh, in activism, and then finally leading to a government crackdown at the end of that period? And perhaps you might like to, to pre, uh, precede that discussion by some preliminary remarks on the, the late 50s and early 60s. Sure. So Malaya gained independence as uh, just a peninsular polity in 1957. Singapore and then the East Malaysian or Borneo states of Sabah and Sarawak joined in 1963. Then Singapore split off in 1965. But we're left with the Federation of Malaysia by the mid-1960s, as well as a newly independent Singapore. In this period, Malaya, Malaysia, um, after Malaya, was governed by a loosely consociational, a racially organized alliance of three parties, Malay, Chinese, and Indian. The three parties were all governed by English-educated capitalist elites. There was a quite open tolerance of a continuing British role, in particular, in the economy. And there was, largely speaking, a continuation of British policies that have been disparaged by many as basically divide and rule, as keeping most Malays tied to the land as rural producers, most Chinese and Indians either in urban areas as clerks, as professionals, and so forth, or um, increasingly also working in mining and for Indians also, especially in plantation agriculture. And so you have an economically split Chinese and Indian community to a greater extent than you have an economically divided Malay community, although there is still a Malay bureaucratic elite. Um, Largely, they're not exclusively comprised of members of the various royal families from the Malay states. 
So the British had early on set up this Malay college at Kuala Kangsar to set up training for a Malay bureaucratic elite to staff the Malay administrative service. Most Malays, though, and they comprised the bulk of the population, were rural, less educated, and educated in Malay. So that's the backdrop. By the mid-1960s, language policies came under fire, as well as what was seen as a perceived disadvantage, structural disadvantage, for Malays in their own land. That came to a head most famously with race riots after the 1969 elections, when, um, as has been described by uh, the then Prime Minister, Tunku Abdul-Rahman, as well as others, Malay have-nots clashed with Chinese have-nots in an electoral contest. And then when it seemed that the Malay-dominated alliance might lose, we had attacks in parts of Kuala Lumpur on Chinese communities. That protests that those riots in 1969 were actually preceded by riots in Penang in 1967 and by just generally heightened racial tensions, which really had to do with foiled expectations among both Chinese who couldn't get jobs, but then especially among Malays who felt that their opportunities for advancement were low, that they had political rights, but that they lacked economic power and who felt that the government wasn't doing enough for them. So on campus, these debates translated into a few key strands that all converged. And I will say that the global backdrop matters here as well. So at the time, the university um, newsletter, Mahasiswa Nagara, included, as it had up until that point, um, a fairly substantial coverage of international student news. And these were the days, of course, of tremendous student protest globally galvanizing and important student protest in various parts of the world, in Paris, in Mexico City, in the United States, and, and elsewhere, over issues of economic development, of civil rights and liberties, of all sorts of uh, issues related to post-colonial development, as well as perceived neocolonialism, the Vietnam War. So Malaysian students were very aware of what was going on in geopolitics and specifically in student politics elsewhere. They're quite hooked in to a global student community. So that's the global backdrop. But the local issues took a somewhat different timbre and were not entirely in sync chronologically with what was going on outside. By 1967, 10 years after independence, Malaysia was set to review its language policies. And protests on campus, led especially by Anwar Ibrahim, uh, the guy still leading opposition politics in Malaysia, pressed for a shift from English as a medium of instruction to Malay as a medium of instruction post-haste in Malaysia. They led uh, Anwar and other groups, especially the Malay Language Society at University of Malaya and the Muslim Students Organization at University of Malaya, both of which he spearheaded, led tremendous protests around these issues of national language, to review the national language policy as had been planned, but to expedite the transition to Malay. That succeeded. So the universities transitioned almost overnight to Malay, putting a lot of lecturers who had been trained themselves in English into quite a bind. With that shift, though, and actually predating it somewhat as part of an effort to spread education more broadly amongst Malays, but definitely stepping up rapidly after the language shift, we saw a sudden influx of Malay students, including from more rural, working, or middle-class backgrounds into the university campus. So we had a, a tremendously rapid demographic shift on campus from a largely non-Malay to a majority Malay population. In addition, partly because of the coincidence of ethnicity and occupational status, part of the tension that gave rise to those 1969 riots, that meant also that more students who were coming onto campus were from the East Coast or other areas of Malaysia rather than the West Coast, which is more prosperous, um, or the Kuala Lumpur area itself, and more were from working class or rural backgrounds. That changed some of the nature of issues of which students were aware and to which they felt that they should give voice. So in this period of the late 60s and early 70s, we saw huge protests, not just around global issues like the Vietnam War, um, 
but also around issues of rural poverty, basically, struggles of rubber tappers. The daughter of one of the leading rubber tappers who led these just incredibly important and huge protests in Baling and Kedah around uh, basically prices for rubber was a student at University of Science Malaysia in Penang at that time, uh, which was a, a brand new university set up to help capture this growing population of university students. Uh, students rallied in Johor and elsewhere around squatters who were demanding land rights and housing. Uh, they also protested still around issues of Malay rights, Malay education, uh, Islam language, but the really pivotal protests were ones that were not confined to the campus that took to the streets with massive marches and protests that had to do with issues in the government's development agenda around poverty, around land rights, and so forth. And that increasingly drew in not an elite English-speaking non-Malay cohort, but a mass across ethnic groups, but involving, because of the shift in the campus, a huge number of Malays who had intrinsic ties to the community. And so this sort of protest was much more of a threat to the government, the, the new post-colonial government at the time, than political engagement that was seen as part and parcel of a nationalist agenda, of arguing against colonialism, of arguing for thoughtful economic policies and so forth. This was not protest against an occupying colonial power, but against the policies of a developmentally ambitious new post-colonial state um, and was intrinsically tied to protests in the broader society around issues of poverty and development broadly. So these protests, which were in sync with protests also in Singapore around labor rights, for instance, demanded, it seemed, a government crackdown, or at least they drew a government crackdown. These protests were threatening to the state in a way that earlier ones perhaps were not. And so we saw in both Malaysia and Singapore a simultaneous crackdown on university students' political activity. In Malaysia, that took the form of the University and University Colleges Act, which was passed in 1971, which forbade most forms of political engagement by students as well as academic staff, uh, supplemented by additional legislation on the discipline of students and staff as well. Those laws initially had very little impact. They were pretty much ignored by students, um, but they were tightened the provisions in 1974 after continuing protests, and that marked the end of that heightened phase of activism. Students could be expelled for participation in protests. They were barred from engagement with political parties in very general terms. So the debates right now in Malaysia over this incredibly loose definition of sedition that's being wielded against activists, that has an earlier form in this um, bar on any, any activity that might be construed as showing support for a political actor, a political party. Um, so those enactments really helped to stifle the campus at a time of a general political crackdown as well. Because again, not only were these protests around development and these other things in which the state was really trying to charge its own agenda, but coincided with broader racial tensions that erupted into racial violence in 1969, a period of the suspension of parliamentary government from 1969 to 71 for nearly two years, um, a reconsolidation of a much more centralized, much more intrusive and controlling state in a lot of ways. And so as students themselves found their freedoms specifically curtailed, so did the general public with revisions to laws on sedition, on official secrets, on what could be discussed including the sanctity of, for instance, Malay rights as being something that were simply taken out of public discussion. And so the crackdown on campus was part and parcel of a larger crackdown and yet had a specific character given the shifting place of students in the campus within that broader seething polity. There are a lot of implications for that period in, in what follows, and we don't have time to go into most of them. And you've just raised so many fascinating points that you explore. 
in depth in the book and that I would love to talk about more, including the, the legal features of the repression and the implications for the student movement, um, the racial violence and its implications. You talk about the, the triumph of communalism and that has important implications for, for what follows. Another feature coming back to the main theme of the book that I do want to touch on momentarily before we close is you, you argue that there was a, a loss of a distinctive student political identity from the mid-70s onwards. And you, again, you explore that through so many different uh, instances and examples and detailed discussions in the last couple of chapters. But if you could give one or two examples of um, how that distinctive identity is lost and what that means for student politics in Malaysia today, I think that would draw us to a very neat close. Sure, I'll talk about two dimensions. One would be um, spatial and the other would be discursive. So on the one hand, students as a collective, again, were defined by this ecology of the campus, that that's part of what gives students a special clout or a special ability to mobilize. And that was destroyed as much as possible after the mid-1970s. So for instance, uh, Speaker's Corner, which was the spot at which most protests took shape, at University of Malaya in the early years, was demolished, raised to the ground. Other universities were moved out. So while the post-1970s period was a time of tremendous expansion of universities in Malaysia, as well as actually in Singapore, the new campuses that were built tended to be outside the city. They tended to lack meeting areas for students, they were set up ecologically to be different, to provide a different environment that would be less conducive to activism. That was the case in Singapore as well, where the campus moved from its initial um, site to the Kent Ridge location it occupies now, uh, which does not have the same sort of obvious central meeting area. So in part, we have this spatial process of changing the nature of a campus experience. Um, that was tied also with shortening the time to degrees, so students stay on campus for less time and so forth. The second way in which students are changed would be a discursive one. And this is really where we find students is becoming more like general members of the public. Some of this is done to students. Some of this is done by students. One indicator that I mentioned in the book is a shift in how students are identified. So in the earlier years, undergraduates are termed mahasiswa as they are in Indonesia. Um, the term, as an Indonesian student activist explained to me, in Indonesia signals by the maha prefix that students are almost second to God, that they have a decidedly, discursively lofty status. In Malaysia, since that crackdown, students instead were called pelajar, which is just student. It's the same term that's used for any students at the primary and secondary level as well. Undergraduates are not discursively disting distinguished from other students. They are not seen as having that lofty status. At the same time, the types of movements that developed on campus were ones which, by their very nature, would bring students more in line with activists outside if they chose to be engaged, than to be student-specific bodies. So, for instance, we had Catholic students organizations that developed on the campuses, especially around the 1980s, really took steam, that they had started earlier. Um, when the so-called Marxist conspiracy in Singapore or Operation Malang in Malaysia cracked down in large part on liberation theology and Catholic activists, that had strong repercussions on campus. So it wasn't so much students or faculty uh, members who were um, arrested at that time, but the reverberations on campus were great. Students also organized tremendously strongly in Da'wah organizations and Islamist organizations on campus, but explicitly drew out links with post-graduation organizations. Some of that had to do with the launch in the early 1970s in Malaysia of ABIM, the Muslim Students Youth, uh, the Muslim Youth Movement of Malaysia, which was designed as a successor organization for graduates from PKPIM, the, the Students Muslim Organization. That was another Anwar Ibrahim initiative. So the idea here is that 
one continue the same sort of activism, both as a student and afterwards, that there not be this sense of here we have the crucible, here we have these four or so years on campus when we'll do these things and then we enter adult life. Rather, students were redefined as of a piece with both earlier education and the subsequent identity as members of the broader society. So students then lose that sense of privileged position. That ties in with the spatial attack, which also has very visual aspects. So for instance, taking down from the walls of the student union building, the, um, the lists of prior renowned leaders of what had been one of the world's strongest, most well-resourced student unions uh, in its paydays. And instead, making sure that students would know very little about that glorious past. So again, it's this combination of a spatial or, or ecological and discursive attack that I think really fundamentally reshapes where students fit within the polity, such that when they do start to engage on a more active level again, it's as part of, rather than as a vanguard of, a reformasi movement and as activists with political parties in the broader sphere rather than activists outside those mainstream political alternatives. And so that then changes fundamentally where students fit within the Malaysian polity and how that compares with how they might fit in polities elsewhere in the region or globally. The book was published in 2011. Would you like to say anything else about what's happened um, in the student movement um, in Malaysia in the subsequent period? And also, if you could tell us a little bit about what you've been working on in the subsequent five years and what we can look forward to next. Well, the key change for students in the period since the book's publication has been an amendment to the University and University Colleges Act. Students now are allowed to be involved with political parties. So there are still some limits on that involvement, um, but students can no longer be expelled for simply joining a political campaign, are no longer under suspicion if as part of a political science class activity, they want to observe a campaign in action, and those had been problems in the past. So that would be the single most important aspect of the change since then. At the same time, students have been um, vocal on campus and off campus in line still with larger politics. And yet the other development, which is of note but less known, I think, is a shift toward almost a New Order era Indonesia style involvement of these different study groups that are forming increasingly off campus often connected with ABIM or some other organization or with a student organization, but not open, above-board, critical organizations on campus. Those still face problems, but rather off-campus study groups that will read books and discuss them or that will meet to engage in some sort of activism in, in conjunction with an anti-sedition uh, anti act or earlier anti-ISA internal security act protest or whatever the issue might be. So that's, those are very different angles on what I see as a major change on campus and among students since the publication. For myself, um, while I do continue to be interested in student politics and in civil society broadly, my current research has been much more on electoral politics um, and in particular on clientless networks of different forms in Malaysia as well as elsewhere in the region. In part, this is, uh, I'm involved with a four-country study of patronage and clientelism as part of electoral politics in Southeast Asia. So that's quite different from the student activism focus. But then uh, my other key project individually has to do with the net political networks on the ground in Singapore and Malaysia and the ways in which these bolster particular aspects of the makeup of the regime, not necessarily the specific leadership, but the way that politics is experienced or the way that the regime appears. So that really does bring me back to what had been my prior research in Malaysia on the ways in which political parties develop among or out of civil societal organizations more broadly, that, that we can see parties as one part of political organization in Malaysia that's tied to a larger range of options. And so 
For that research, I'm really looking at what politicians, both from governing and opposition parties in Singapore and Malaysia, do on the ground, how it is that they rally support, who constitutes their team. It's not just the political parties themselves. And what that sort of organization and those set of activities mean for what we might expect of political change were it to happen. We've really only scratched the surface of the contents of this book, um, which is so rich and, and full of details. So, um, <laughs> Meredith, I'd, I'd like to, to thank you for your time today in talking about it and also giving us an indication of what we can look forward to um, in the, the future. Thank you for, for speaking to us. Thanks, my pleasure. And um, you've been listening to Meredith Wise speak about her 2011 book, Student Activism in Malaysia, Crucible Mirror Sideshow. Thank you very much for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, and I hope you'll tune in again for the next talk. Hey,